Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. The Lord is risen. Blessings to you on this resurrection day. This Easter morning when we gather to celebrate, the Lord has indeed risen from the grave. Despite the best attempts of the enemy to kill and destroy, to thwart the plan of God, death could not hold our Savior in the tomb. What a joy and a privilege it is to worship with you this morning as we remember the hope that is found in the one and only resurrected Jesus Christ. For those of you joining us for the first time, my name's Matt Harmon. I have the great privilege of pastoring here at Montrose Bible Church, where for the last several weeks, we have been considering God's care, the concern and capacity to forgive the little ones who believe, according to Jesus' teaching in the book of Matthew. And isn't that what this day really is all about? God demonstrating his love in this. That while those little ones were yet sinners, Christ died for them. Offering those who believe the greatest of all blessings called forgiveness. Now, of course, we could depart from that sermon series for a more traditional Easter morning text. But I believe the Lord has us in Matthew chapter 18 verses 21 through 35, by a measure of his providence. And I see no reason to skip over a passage about forgiveness on this, the day that it was won. So if you have not done so already, turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 18 and follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 21. After Jesus told the apostles how they should go after the wayward, the wandering caught in sin sheep, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. 
So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My father, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. May God bless the reading of his word. And when the disciples first arrived in Capernaum, they came to Jesus seeking honor and glory for themselves, hoping to be the most highly favored men in all the earth. But as the Lord went on to explain, uh, that's not how it works in the economy of heaven. No, in order to be first in the eyes of the Lord, you must be last. In order to be greatest of all, you must be servant of all. Cloaking yourself in humility rather than boasting in your strength. To illustrate that point, Jesus called a small child to himself and began to discuss not only their need to become like children, but also God's care and concern for those little ones who believe. Don't be the reason that one of them stumbles, Jesus warned the apostles. And don't despise them when they do. Instead, you go after them. Like the shepherd of a hundred sheep who searches tirelessly for the one who has gone astray, you go after the wayward, knowing the extraordinary value that God has placed on each and every individual who believes. Even when they've been unduly influenced by the ungodly. Even when they've been led astray by false teaching. Even when they wander off for a time into sin. Those who are part of God's choice and elect company will forever be the beloved of God. If you are among the redeemed this morning, then you are most precious in the eyes of the Lord. Not because of some inner worth that you possess, of course, but because of the high price that God paid to secure you and your forgiveness. I mean, the fact that he spent the blood of his one and only son to purchase you, that changes the game, friends. And it must change the way that we play it. That's what this morning's text is all about. Appreciating the magnitude of Christ's forgiveness. One for you on the cross of Calvary, Confirmed to you by the empty tomb. Appreciating the magnitude of Christ's forgiveness. Enough to go and do likewise. That's what this morning's text is all about. Right from the very first 
question. How often should we forgive those who trespass against us? Isn't that what the apostles were asking in verse 21? Peter, their spokesman, came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Still processing Jesus' remarks about the reconciliation process just outlined in the preceding verses, Peter asked about the limits of this brother-to-brother forgiveness. I mean, you've told us to go privately to address another's sin in hopes of bringing about repentance. If that doesn't work, we take additional witnesses to convict and to change. Should that fall short, you want us to invest even more capital by involving the congregation. And if they won't listen even to the church, we're to make that one final attempt using the only instrument left at our disposal, the instrument of excommunication. You've laid all of that out, Lord, as plain as can be. Because you want us to exhaust every possible resource over and over again. But there has to be some limit. No? How many times are we supposed to reach out our hand knowing that it's going to get bitten? How many times must we allow the repentant sinner back into the fold? According to the Jewish rabbinical authorities, a brother could be forgiven a repeated offense up to three times. After that, should a fourth violation occur, there would be no more forgiveness. Yeah, but Peter knows that in the kingdom of heaven, there's a whole lot more grace. So, As an answer to his own question, Peter more than doubles the existing Jewish threshold. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? No doubt Peter assumed he was being generous in this offer. Going way above and beyond what was called for by traditional religious standards. But it would seem that after two and a half years of this discipleship journey, Peter still doesn't understand. Two and a half years into this discipleship journey, the apostles don't understand. Twenty years into my salvation, I'm not sure that I fully understand. That in God's economy, forgiveness knows no bounds. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? It's not three times like the rabbis were suggesting. It's not seven times, though that's a lot. No, Jesus says, Stop introducing all of these 
limitations where they do not belong. The kingdom of heaven doesn't operate under those kind of constraints. And if you are part of that kingdom, then neither will you. So Jesus responds to Peter, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now Christ's phrasing here may seem a bit odd, but it is a reference back to another more famous 77 that we come across in Scripture. Back in Genesis chapter 4, we read about a man named Lamech, the great, great, great grandson of Cain, whose arrogance, revelry, and bloodthirstiness became a cautionary tale for all humanity. And what has become to be known as the Song of Lamech or the Song of the Sword, he said to his wives in Genesis 4.23, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. This is the first recorded poem of the human race, the melody of which promises 77 acts of revenge. I mean, that's the way of the world, you see. And it is the exact opposite of forgiveness. And with that old evil mindset of Lamech, man will seek nothing but retribution against anyone who would sin against them. But Christ has ushered in a new song. A new day, a new paradigm, reversing the curse of humanity. From 70 times 7 in revenge to 70 times 7 in forgiveness. Or better yet, a forgiveness that doesn't even keep track. That's really what Jesus is saying here. Not that we should tally up every offense until we reach a number of 490, but that we would be a people who keep no record of wrongs. God didn't in his accounting, praise be, (laughs) neither should we. Yeah? How often should we forgive those who trespass against us? Over and over and over again without keeping record because no matter what offense we may have suffered, the Lord has forgiven us of a debt far greater. Take a look back at verse 23. Jesus says, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself 
before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Now here we encounter another of Jesus' parables describing the kingdom of heaven. Specifically, the way the kingdom operates in regard to forgiveness. In response to Peter's questions about boundaries and limits and thresholds, Jesus offers some much-needed perspective. He says, you're worried about settling accounts with people who owe you? That's hardly worth a discussion. Not when you realize your indebtedness, your obligation, your balance due, the Holy One of Heaven. Now, to illustrate this point, Jesus tells the apostles a fictional story about a man that was one day, suddenly, unexpectedly, called to account by the king. Of course, there shouldn't have been anything sudden or unexpected about it because everyone everywhere is eventually called to account. But even those who know that intellectually tend to be surprised when the day of reckoning actually arrives. And what was the man doing prior to that day of determination? Well, like most people, he was living for himself, unaware of the hole that he was digging himself into. Oh, but when the Lord calls him to come and review his ledger, he is then made to realize just how much he owes. As Martin Luther put it, before the king drew him to account, he had no conscience. He did not feel the debt. And he would have gone right along making more debt and caring nothing about it. But now that the king reckons with him, he begins to feel it. And so it is with us. The greater part does not concern itself about sin but goes on securely, fearing not the wrath of God. Such people cannot come to the forgiveness of sin, for they do not come to realize they have sins. They say indeed with the mouth that they have sin, but if they were serious about it, they would speak far otherwise. This servant too would have said, oh, I probably owe 10,000 talents to the Lord and laughed about it. But now that the reckoning is held and his Lord orders him, his wife, and his children and everything to be sold, now he feels the weight of burden. And so too we feel in earnest when our sins are revealed in the heart, when the record of our debts is held before us. And I assure you, Luther says, in that moment, all our laughter will stop. What a sobering experience for this servant. 
after years and years of debt accumulation, to now stand face to face with the one you owe? What a sobering experience. Not just for the servant, but for you and I as well. For as Scripture assures us, we too will stand before the Lord one day, and each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And in that accounting, we will all be forced to acknowledge the same thing the servant came to realize this day, that we owe the Lord a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, a lot has been made about that amount, and everyone seems to have their own estimate of what it might have been worth in their economy. We glimpse some idea of the indebtedness when we recall that David donated 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of silver for the construction of the temple. To put it another way, well, this would have been at least a thousand times the annual revenue of Galilee, Judea, Samaria, and Idumea put together. Depending on one, how one carries out the calculations, estimates range anywhere from 12 million to 600 billion to figures that far exceed that. Seems there's something about our finite minds that want to quantify everything so we can better wrap our minds around some tangible number. And we might be able to accomplish that with other figures, but not when talking about the debt that man owes God. That amount cannot possibly be tallied. In fact, the real number that appears in verse 24 of your text, it isn't 10,000 at all. No, the Greek word that appears at this point in Matthew's gospel doesn't even have a numeric value associated with it because there is no number that could ever compare to the sinner's indebtedness. No, the actual word used to describe it is myrios, from which we get the English myriad, meaning beyond many, countless and innumerable. Because like this servant, yeah, we've been living for the moment, unaware of the hole that we've been digging ourselves into. And every hour of every day, week after week, Month after month, year after year, our debt of sin has been piling up against us to such an astronomical degree as to be totally and completely incalculable. You've borrowed and you've borrowed and you've borrowed, friend. And someday... You're going to owe what you couldn't possibly pay in a thousand or more lifetimes. 
And yet we walk around in damnable ignorance to that fact. Unaware, unfazed, unconcerned about where our sin has put us. But I promise, at the time of reckoning, you're going to care. And you're going to care deeply. Because you owe the king a fortune. And you don't have the means to repay. So in that moment, what are you going to do? What are you going to do knowing that you're about to be sold into bondage, handed over to the evil one if your debt remains unpaid? What are you going to do? Oh, you're going to do what this servant did, I would hope. When he came to that realization in verse 26, they were told the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before his king saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. When you realize your debt is that big and you owe that much, when there is no means of repayment and you have absolutely no other recourse at your disposal, then all you can do is appeal to the Lord for mercy. And this is the appropriate posture from which to do that. Face first on the ground at the feet of your master. In fact, the word that Jesus uses there, prostuneo, that's the same word we typically translate worship. Literally, to kiss the hand, the knee, or the foot of the monarch to whom you make your merciful plea. With face in the dust, the servant laid prostrate in worship and said, If you will stay your judgment in my case, I will repay you everything. Or better translated, I will give my all Back to you. See, it's not about paying some currency. The money's gone. And everybody knows it. No, this is about the plea for mercy. This is about the posture of worship. This is about the promise of everything that you've got. Only then does the king grant forgiveness. But praise God, glory, glory, and hallelujah, he will. In verse 27, upon hearing the servant's cry, the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. 
Now understand, friends, this is how Jesus chose to illustrate God's forgiveness. In a situation where the offended party suffers the loss of inconceivable value to set the guilty man free. And if you still think that this is just an illustration, then you have missed entirely what this day is about. The reality, as all of you should be aware, the reality is this. That because of your sin, you owe a greater than can be imagined debt to the holy infinite God of the universe. That you have absolutely no ability to pay back even one thousandth of one percent. And thus you deserve immediate punishment in the form of death. And yet you are still here. Yes? A testimony to God's incredible patience and mercy. Withholding the judgment that is yours by right. And every day that goes by offering you the opportunity to recognize the depths of your depravity. To bend your knee before him and to repent of your sin. That in so doing, God might apply his forgiveness to your account. Counting Christ's death and resurrection as your debt's repayment. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Yeah. The original question is how often should we forgive those who trespass against us? The answer over and over and over again without keeping record because no matter what offense we may have suffered, the Lord has forgiven us of a debt far greater. That reality should change your entire frame of reference. Take a look back at verse 27. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what was happening, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Now you have to imagine that after this encounter, the servant would have walked out of the king's presence in an absolute daze. I mean, one moment he was facing 
indentured servitude. The loss of his possessions up to and including death. And then at a word, he was completely free. Every penny of his debt had been forgiven. His family status was restored. I mean, if this man understood what he just experienced, if he had given it just a moment to penetrate and percolate, we would have found him rejoicing like no man has ever rejoiced before. With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Seeing how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. If this man only understood what he had just experienced then maybe he could have experienced a little more of what was understood. But he didn't. And that's the problem as Jesus sees it. For immediately after this, forgiven of much debtor was granted his release. He goes after a man that was indebted to him. In Christ's parable, the borrower owes him 100 denarii. A sizable sum among the working class, equal perhaps to three months' wages. Certainly nothing to sneeze at on its own. But in comparison to the debt that had just been forgiven this servant... This amount is beyond worthless. Being 500,000 times less than the blessing he had just received. But somehow, that disparity was completely lost on the one whom the king had pardoned. Because he failed to appreciate, appropriate, and apply that pardon in his life. That's why he's hunting down fellow slaves, seizing them, choking them, and threatening them for repayment. Because the forgiveness he was granted did nothing to change his heart. I mean, even this man's plea for mercy didn't move him. A plea that was remarkably similar to the one he himself had just uttered about five minutes before. Where his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Even that fell on deaf ears as the man was still unwilling to extend forgiveness. But what did Jesus say at the very outset of this parable? That the kingdom of heaven only operates under this paradigm, where forgiveness that is received 
from God must be granted others as a response to God. That's the new pattern, you say. Based on the principle Jesus spelled out any other number of other places in the Gospels. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they've entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Friends, if you realize how greatly you have been forgiven, if you realize that every moment of your life you've been heaping up an incalculable pile of sin, if you've ever once beaten your breast like the publican and said, Lord, be merciful to me, the greatest of all sinners, then you would be forever changed. Not you might be changed. Not you could be changed. You would be. As evidence that God's forgiveness in you is real. And where that is not the case, oh, what are we left to conclude? I mean, surely something is amiss in that scenario. And everyone can see it but you. The fellow slaves certainly took notice of this disconnect, this hypocrisy, this incongruence. In verse 31, we're told, when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Those who were looking on found it unconscionable that a man who had just had his whole life given back to him would withhold mercy and forgiveness from someone else. It's unconscionable. And it calls the validity of your claim to God's forgiveness right back into question. For as Jesus made clear back in Matthew chapter 6, if you forgive others for their transgressions, well, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Do you see? This conversation began with a simple question. How often should we forgive those who trespass against us? The answer is over and over and over again. Because no matter what offense we may have suffered, the Lord has forgiven us of a debt far greater. That reality should change our entire frame of reference. No longer withholding mercy from others, but extending it in the same manner it has been received. That's what Jesus is teaching in verses 31 through 35 of our text. 
When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, came and reported to their Lord all that took place. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So Jesus says, my heavenly father will also do the same to you. It's each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. You know, throughout this narrative, several things should have become clear. One, the immeasurably great debt that you owe to God because of your sin. Two, the immeasurably great act of mercy it took to forgive it. And three, our need to show mercy to others, lest we forfeit the blessing that God has so graciously offered. That's what's on the line here, friends. As we consider what, when, how often we are to forgive others who have sinned. I mean, the truth is, as followers of Christ, we should be the most merciful people of all. Because we have received the most mercy through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. When he went to that cross and walked out of that tomb, he did all that was required to cancel your debt. I mean, that's real, friends. And we recognize that today more than any other. But if you're still walking around as a debtor, if you're still harboring resentment in your heart, if you have never appropriated his pardon and allowed that to flow through you to others, then despite what Christ has made available, that debt will remain on your ledger and you will be sentenced as such. J.I. Packer once wrote, those whose professed faith does not express itself in a new lifestyle marked by loving service to God and others will be lost. That's what Christ is saying in this parable. That you should have mercy on others in the same way that God has had mercy on you. And if you won't do that, then clearly God's mercy has not had its saving effect in your life. For with that, his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him 
something he could never possibly do. You know, friends, there are a lot of fine church-going people, many of them gathered in sanctuaries today, who would lay claim to God's forgiveness. But it does you no good to claim God's forgiveness if your attitudes and your actions testify to the contrary. It does you no good. Because if the pardon of God is anything, it is dynamic and it is life-changing. So let it change your life. Yeah. I mean, if ever there was a day of transformation, this is it. So let the forgiveness of God change your life. I beg you, let it accomplish its good work. Knowing that Christ Jesus gave his life so you could lay hold of it. Please, I beg you, let the forgiveness of God change your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we cannot possibly begin to quantify the depths of your mercy, the pile of our sin, or the lengths that you went to in order to forgive it. Lord, you purchased the redeemed with the blood of your one and only Son. That it's the only payment that could have wiped out our sin debt. How could that not change our lives? Lord, help us to appreciate the weight and the burden and the cost. Help us to understand it. So that we can begin, maybe, to appreciate the sacrifice that you made, the pardon that you offered, the forgiveness that you granted. Lord, that maybe in that, through the work of your Holy Spirit, we could apply these things to our lives and start living as a people who are forgiven. Forgiven at the cross, confirmed by the empty tomb. Lord, we stand this day what should be a changed people, so change us, Lord. Change us more and more into the image of the one who died to set us free, that his name would be exalted forever and ever in our lives. Continue to be exalted now, we pray. Amen and amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. 
Come worship with us at 9.30 every Sunday along Lake Avenue. 